This morning we will turn our attention to the subject of Christmas, and we are four weeks away from Christmas Day, and I thought it'd be good to spend the next four weeks uh, talking about Christmas, Uh, but from the vantage point of the Old Testament, so we're calling this series Ancient Christmas. Historically, uh, this is called Advent, the four weeks leading up to Christmas Day, and, and this is the first Advent. Advent means arrival. That's what we're looking at, the first arrival. And so for the next four weeks, we'll look at the promised first arrival of Jesus. And uh, our attention always is praying to the Lord's second advent, right? His second arrival, that Lord would come quickly. But this morning, we look at the first one, and we're going to look at Genesis 3. So if you have a Bible, we encourage you to turn to that passage in Genesis 3, just a few pages in. If you don't have one, there should be one there in the seats. We encourage you to have that open as you're here this morning. It'll help you focus on our time. And when we come to Genesis 3, we come to the history of the world. Uh, We might think that Genesis is is only there to give us history. It is a historical book. But we must remember that Moses wrote this book, and he wrote it for a people to understand this world. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote this history for of the world for the people of God after they had fled Egypt. In Genesis 2, 4, we hear about the purpose of this history. It says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So Moses is seeking to answer this question for God's people, what happened to God's good creation? Because God's people when he's writing, are not experiencing God's creation is good when they're in Egypt, when they're wandering the wilderness. God's people had experienced slavery in Egypt and hard labor from morning to night, no freedom to worship, their baby boys being drowned in the Nile. They began to question God's good creation. And then came the horrendous journey out of Egypt into the desert, with the burning sun and horrible thirst and lethal snakes and constant feelings of dread. Moses would describe the wilderness in Deuteronomy 8, it says, as the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions. So we need to put ourselves in their position, listening to this. And in that desert, every Israelite who had left Egypt died except Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. It was a horrendous journey, littered with grave after grave. Within 40 years, a whole generation's dead. And so you can imagine the question, what happened to God's good creation? Why is life so hard? Why is there pain? Why is there suffering? Why is there eventual death? Why? Moses isn't writing a history to just have history. And and he's not writing a book for us to argue over for years. He's writing to a people to answer what happened to the good life. He's not simply giving historical events. He wants to direct our eyes and our hearts to the symptoms of all the current issues that we face in our life right now. He doesn't simply give us the the what, what happened, but he also gives us the why, and he gives us the who to look for, for hope. See, Israel, who's suffering, can have hope that evil will eventually be overcome through a seed, the seed of the woman. There's a rescuer coming. That's what Christmas is about. There's a rescuer coming. So here's the main idea. Here's the main thrust that I hope to argue in this text this morning, this sermon. Rejecting God brings shame and consequences, but Jesus covers us eternally. Rejecting God brings shame and consequences, but Jesus covers us eternally. Adam and Eve sin by rejecting God's goodness and choose their own way of life. And their rejection brings about this nakedness and shame, but God won't leave them in that desperate state. He will cover their shame. He will give a a covering, but at a cost. And in that, he will give hope in the midst of sin 
shame, and death. So there's three points as we walk through this. Doubting sin's sway. These are really directed at Adam and Eve. The doubting sin's sway, sin's secret shame, and third, experiencing sin's consequences. So if you haven't already, turn to Genesis 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 21 this morning. I think maybe in the bulletin or it was announced earlier, we're going to stop at 15 and I changed my mind. We're going to go to verse 21, okay? Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, garden neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you? that you were naked. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your faith you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made Adam, made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So first, what I want to look at is doubting sin's sway. When we enter into Genesis chapter 3, we enter into a major conflict that has sprung up for the first two humans that were created. Just when life seemed to be going smoothly, a villain Uh, comes into the scene, and a war begins. Now, we tend not to think about Christmas in war-like terms. We'd rather have chestnuts roasting on the fire. And we want to have a merry little Christmas. But that's not what we read in the Bible. That's not what we read in Genesis 3. This is actually war. When Moses gets to verse 15, he says that God, God will put enmity between the serpent and the woman. The word enmity talks and means about hatred, strife, and hostility. Friends, enmity is a word of warfare. All of this coming in times of peace. So let's walk through this. Verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Satan comes as a serpent, and he's more crafty and cunning than any other beast, it says. He doesn't come exposed and clear to to what he's up to. No, he's the opposite. Cunning, he's going to protect himself. He has ulterior motives. And he begins with the question, did God actually say? And, And what a damning question that is. Satan is not doing market research as to see 
if they like the fruit better on the trees besides the one in the garden in the middle. He's mocking God. He's making fun of God in the question to Eve. He's trying to get Eve to laugh at God. John, the gospel writer, says of Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand on the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan only has one direction and it's away from God and his word. And and the fall the rebellion of the human race starts not with an action or even a thought, but an attitude of the heart. And this is true for, for us in the world today. Not many people, uh, I don't believe, lose faith in God because of an argument. No, most people lose faith in God because of an environment an atmosphere of snickering, laughing at God. It's snarky questions. Do do you really believe that about God? Do you really think that? I mean, that book is really old. Do you really believe God's word is true? That God really gave us the Bible? That's so silly. Friends, most of our kids if, it, if they're going to be tempted to leave God, it won't happen with lofty arguments. It will come through the mocking of God. It will come through the mocking of living for God. It will come through that peer pressure in the world to, to laugh at what God says and what he says in his word. It will come because they will feel foolish for believing in God for trusting in the Bible. Furthermore, for many, it will become because they attend church with people like us. People who say they love God and seek to obey God and live lives totally opposite than that. Oh, you believe abortion is wrong, and yet you are so hateful to people made in the image of God. Our kids are watching that. You say that you should wait until you're married because that's the best way, but your marriage is only on paper. You're like two trains passing in the night. In fact, all you do is fight. So why should I get married at all? See, we hold such great power as a church family to show our children, whether they're our children or others, what it looks like to follow God. And they will listen to what we say about God but more than likely they're gonna watch us that if we're actually following God. And that will speak volumes to our kids. So are you living your life as more as do as I say than follow how I live? The serpent said to the woman, did God actually say? Did God really say that? You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. You see her response? The woman said to the serpent, verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you should not eat of the fruit of the trees that are in the midst of the garden. Neither Neither shall you touch it. We won't get into this, but she adds to what God says. But the serpent said to the woman, verse four, you shall not surely die, for, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You know, the, the questioning there is, does it really matter? Does it really matter what, 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 what tree you eat from? I mean, all that really matters is that you have food. I mean, what's the big deal about this tree? Why was there uh, prohibitions against it anyways? See, questions like these emphasize the need for God's prohibition and overlook the, the 
abundance of provision that God had given to Adam and Eve. The serpent says that God wants to keep Adam and Eve from becoming like him, referring to the ability to discern for themselves what is good and what is evil. But the issue is more specific than that. The issue is the source of all knowledge and whether God is and should be the ultimate source of knowledge or can they be the ultimate source of knowledge. See, Satan is speaking in ways that is subtle, seemingly true on the outside, but devastating on the inside. See, if they can discern what is good from evil, then why do they need God? Instead of submitting themselves to the authority of God's Word to make them wise, they want to decide the issue for themselves. They want to be autonomous. To act autonomously is to act like you are God. They begin to believe the lies of Satan, and they are doubting the sway of sin. It it did seem to them, it seemed unreasonable, this prohibition against the tree. And they forget the goodness of God. And if God's so good, why wouldn't He give them everything? Could God really be trusted? We have the same issues today do I really have to stay faithful to my spouse? They've been rude and disconnected, and lately I can't remember the last time that thing happened. Do I really even have to get married? Is that, isn't that just the construct of our social pressure just for taxes? I mean, it seems so outdated. Why can't I just live together? Did God really say, does he really say that I have to be honest with all of my finances, or can I be, have some wiggle room here and there? Does God actually care uh, what I listen to, what movies I watch? Why shouldn't I talk about that person behind their back? They've hurt me so much before. Why is it bad to do now? I need to, I need to let people know about that person. George Whitfield said of this, we may be assured we, fall, we are fallen into and begin to fall by temptations when we begin to think God will be not as good as his word. We begin to be so focused on ourselves and what we think is right and wrong. And when the temptation comes, suggesting that, that what God has commanded us is unreasonable and intended to really make us miserable, we choose to sin. The serpent suggests to her that she doesn't need God to know right and wrong, that they could be their own moral compass. And the question is, is are we living that way? Have we decided to live as if we are our own moral compass in life. Our world has, as we can clearly see. But what about us? I'm not preaching to the world. I'm preaching to you. What about us, the people in church? Where do we go on a regular basis to find out what is true and how we should live? Well, Eve, betrayed by her frustration with the restrictions that God has placed, She entertains the idea that God doesn't have her best interest in mind, and now the tingle of rebellion is rushing through her now, and she will take the fruit. We know this story. We've heard it if you've been to church your whole life, right? And and where's Adam? Well, actually, Adam, I believe, is right there next to her, standing passively. He's not deceived like Eve, but willfully rebels against God and his word. So Eve listens to the serpent, Adam listens to Eve, and no one will listen to God. And we see that they don't understand the serious sway of sin, and it will lead to devastating results. 
So number two, sin's secret shame. Look at verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. See, uh, Eve is looking at the tree, and she sees that it's good. By the way, sin always looks good. If it didn't look good, we wouldn't be tempted with it at all. It delighted her eyes, and she desired to be wise. She, she coveted it, and so she had to have, and she, she took the fruit, and she ate. Then, then she shares with her husband, and he ate. Then verse 7, both, both their eyes were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Their eyes were open. Satan was correct in some ways, but they were not like God. Sin leads to to guilt and shame, and and finally, it leads to a loss of transparency. They could see, all right, they could see all of their openness now, and it freaks them out because all they can see is their nakedness. In verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. That's a whole other sermon, by the way. Just think about that this week. It's the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what, the, what does the man and woman do? They hide. They went from having their lives filled with blessing and openness and intimacy and ongoing, fulfilled lives with God to now hiding, alienated, fearing God. They're not only filled with shame, they're cowering in their shame. I'm sure these were new emotions for them. They'd never experienced this before. In verse 9, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? We're going to cover this in the third point, really, but I want you to notice, who does the Lord call out to first? It's not a trick question. The man, Adam. He's the leader. He's responsible. He should have led his wife. And where are they now? Hiding in the trees. And God calls out to them, where are you? God knows, by the way, where they are. God knows what they've done but he's calling out to them to show them themselves. We'll look at this in a few weeks, but God is our wonderful counselor. And this is the first biblical counseling session in the Bible. And he asks good questions to try to show them their heart. Where are you? Where, where have you gone? Adam responds, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Naked? Naked? Adam, who told you were naked? See, Adam has always been naked. This isn't new. At the end of chapter 2, it says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. But now they understand that they are naked and they're ashamed. So what changed? It wasn't that they were physically blind that they couldn't see their own nakedness. They knew it. It didn't bother them before. Now they have a new conscience, new, new awareness of their nakedness, and it leaves them feeling guilty and ashamed. See, the minute, the second that Adam and Eve disobey God, they have to have complete control over the information about themselves. To, to be completely control of what is seen about them. To be naked is to be known, to be vulnerable. They had no issue whatsoever to be naked before they sinned. It was, it was of no consequence to them earlier. They were comfortable with it. They were open and unashamed. They, they were fully known by each other and by God, and there was no anguish, no anxiety, no fear. But now... Now to be naked is to be out of control of the information that someone is getting about you. 
That's why when you go to the beach and you wear a bathing suit, it is perfectly normal. But if you're invited to go to church later in the church building wearing that same suit, it causes shame and you want to hide. It's the same suit, but you can't control things now in that situation, in that environment. To be vulnerable to someone is to be open. To be unable to control the information a person is getting about you. And being exposed for us is absolutely horrifying. But Scripture tells us that we were built to be known, fully known, and to be loved. But we have bought into the lie that we can only be loved if we're not fully known. And it isn't true, friends. That's the lie that we are striving for here as a church family to dispel through church membership and small groups and gospel friendships. To be known as we truly are and to be loved, that's the way that we've been designed. And that's the way the church should function. That's how Christian community should be. That's what we desire as a church. And we recognize it's hard. Because deep down, all of us are fearing that we might be exposed for who we really are. And we want to control the information about ourselves. And yet we still know that there are two eyes that see everything about us. Every one of us here this morning stand before a holy God naked, unable to cover ourselves, unable to cover who we truly are. And there's two eyes that see all of us, and they're perfectly just, truthful, holy, and righteous eyes. Hebrews tells us, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God is watching us. He sees everything about us. And we know that there's a reckoning coming. And we feel as though we need to try to control the information about ourselves. But friend, God, God knows everything about us. You You can't hide in the trees. He knows where you are. He knows everything about you. Adam and Eve didn't lose their clothes when they took that bite. They never had physical clothes, but they lost something. They lost their righteousness. They lost their acceptability. They lost their greatness and glory and they lost their purity and holiness. Those were the things that allowed them to stand before God and to walk with him in the garden without any fear, with no shame, completely vulnerable to him. They were once able to stand before God, to walk with him without any humiliation, without any doubts, no anxiety, completely free and loved, and they lost it. And they feel inadequate now. They feel small. They, they, they can't stand to be fully known. Do you feel that in your life? Do you understand what Adam and Eve are experiencing in this passage? Do you see it in yourself? You know, they, they sin when they take the bite of the apple from the tree or whatever kind of fruit it was, commanded not to eat from And when they do, they're exposed. And for the first time, they feel the weight of sin. And what do they do? They they cover up, they hide. And we do the same thing in our lives. 
we have convinced ourselves the only way that people will accept us is if we will cover up all of our sin on our, of ourselves. I have been a, around long enough. I have dated myself, and I've seen plenty of young people date. And it's so true in dating. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Dating is used car sales. Right? Y'all remember, right? Put your best foot forward. You don't want them to see your car, man, because that's just a pit. So you're going to meet somewhere. You're, you're, trying to, you're trying to control the information about yourself. You're trying to control what they can see about you. Because if they really knew you, they might not want to be with you. But then the rude awakening happens on the honeymoon. Right? One amen. The all rest of you are lying. <laughs> fully known, fully seen, and shock and awe. It happens in other ways. You're, you're extremely private person. No one should know who you are, so you put up a tough exterior. You just don't want to let anyone in. Or there's a person that just has to look good, and so you, you dress nicely. You spend a lot on clothes. You spend a lot on your hair, your makeup. Or those that are really smart. They're just gifted with, with knowledge, and they know lots of things, and, and they want to do all the talking. They want to do all of the discussion to make sure that no one looks at them. They want to make sure the discussion's out there. Or those that are convinced yourself that you have to be married because then you will be fully accepted. There's so many different things. These are attempts to cover up ourselves and you're trying to hide. You're trying to hide yourself. Even religiously, those that come to church every week, you're always here, you, you always want to serve, you give faithfully, you have a ministry at the church, and if anyone dares to take that ministry from you, you're just going to take them down. Because essentially, you're using your religion, your service to God as a cover-up for something lacking in your life. So you know what all those things are? Relationships, work, service, religion. Genesis says, to us, they knew that they were naked, and what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together. Those things that we do, those actions that we, we, we go forward in to cover ourselves, they're all fig leaves. And you've seen the pictures, right, in magazines or on the internet of Adam and Eve and fig leaves, they're hilarious. That's what we look like when we, when we sew fig leaves together to cover up because we don't want to be seen. We bring these coverings into our life because we're afraid of what other people might think of us. They're all fig leaves. And you feel when you're not covered that you're not accepted and you, you frantically look to cover up. I have to cover myself. I cannot let others see who I really am. Friends, God sees you. He sees all of you. And he's not repelled. That's shocking. When we know ourselves well enough, right? Adam and Eve... They hated what they saw in themselves. And they knew God could see them. And what they teach us is that sin causes us to hate the gaze of God on our lives. That we, we, we are disgusted with it. This could have been the end of the story. This could have been it here. They, they sin by taking the fruit. They experience this overwhelming shame. And it could have been the end. But really, this serves to give us a new story. Yeah, I want you to notice one last thing before we go to the third point. 
I want you to notice in this section that God is the one that sought after them. They didn't seek out God. Where were they? They're hiding. They're ashamed of their sin. They didn't seek God. If it was up to Adam and Eve to seek God, they would still be hiding in the trees. God had to seek them out. He is the one that takes the initiative. God is always the one who takes the initiative with sinners. Otherwise, we would continue to be lost in our sins. God seeks them out with grace and mercy. And this is one of the first pictures in Scripture of of what God looks like personally to us. He takes the initiative to look for sinners, and He will be the one to cover their shame. Number three, they need to experience sin's consequences. You know, sin promises so much and it cannot deliver. Sin is the biggest liar next to Satan. Sin holds out this hope that everything will be great and when you do the thing that you know you shouldn't, it'll be great. Sin promises big things and always, always, always underdelivers. And sin always has consequences. Verse 12. He's being questioned. The man said, the woman you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Adam is being led by Eve here. He doesn't take responsibility for himself and her together. He's there, and his sin is the sin of consent. There, there seems to be no fight or even argument about this. He takes the fruit from her, and he eats. And what we learn about this is that he's passive. Husbands tend to be passive. But then he goes to the other extreme and becomes harsh. And he blames his wife. This is the the first husband failing at his job to lead his wife. And there's devastating consequences for him and for the human race. Before we get to that, though, even, God answers the threat of the enemy, right? He, he, he condemns. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. That's where we get the phrase, eat my dust, right there. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Christmas reminds us that God did not leave us naked and ashamed. He didn't leave us doomed to the enemy. He sent a rescuer. He sent a seed. Verse 15, uh, theologians call this the proto-evangelum. It's the first gospel message, the first time we read that there is coming a rescuer, a savior. And it points to the significance of Christmas because it's all about the gospel. No, I'm not. Bah humbug. Have a tree. Decorate your house. Have lights. Christmas cookies. Who doesn't love Christmas cookies? Do those things. But don't forget what Christmas is about. It's about God sending his son to die for us. It's about a rescuer coming to earth. And that rescuer is going to come to cover us, to redeem us. And the seed of the woman will be Christ and yet there's still consequences. We need to get to those. To the woman, he said in verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles that shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. See, the consequences of, of sin here are very steep. To the woman, she will experience pain in childbirth. I'm really sorry, ladies. 
It possibly means before the fall that you had the opportunity to have relatively pain-free childbirth. To the man, you will struggle with work. There will be roadblocks and difficulties, and it wasn't supposed to be this way. But that's not all. And because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve, sin establishes patterns of behavior that affect the marriage relationship. Eve was made to be her husband's companion and helper, but she will fight against that and seek to dictate to him and dominate him. Rather than look to her husband for guidance, she will seek to manipulate him. And the man, instead of loving his wife, compassionately and guiding her and guarding her, he will lord it over her and exploit her or just plain ignore her and her needs. And so rather than having this beautiful one flesh union, there will be strife because of the self-centered stance that they each will take in their marriage. And so what we learn in this passage, husbands, you have the tendency to be passive, to not accept your God-given role as leader in your marriage, or you will tend to be dominant and harsh with your wife. And in the middle is where we should be. But those are usually the two extremes that we see. And both are sins and need to be confessed and repented of. Women, you, will, you have the tendency to complain about your husband for the problems of your marriage. And you will seek to control what happens in the family. You won't like what he does or how he leads or the lack of leadership, and so you will exert yourself to lead. Both are sins and need to be confessed and repented of. And because of the rebellion of the fall, marriage has become a battlefield over who will control the relationship instead of a loving union that seeks the best for each other through selfless sacrifice. I've spent a lot of hours in marriage counseling with people and it usually comes down to these two issues for each spouse. I want to say something that's not shocking to any of you who are human. When you're in strife, who's usually to blame? The other person. Right? That's where we go. When we have those issues in a marriage relationship, it's their fault. So, hey, Pastor Jeff, we need to come see you. We've got problems. It's my spouse. And the first thing I say is, your biggest problem is you. And they don't come back. It's easy to say, it's really easy to preach. It's hard to apply. Our biggest problem in our relationships is ourself. And if we would listen, all of us would listen and see the word and apply it to our life, I think our marriages would be more healthy and growing. It won't be perfect. We'll have good days and we'll have horrible weeks. Striving to, to live in light of what God's word says and pleading for God to give us help affords us the opportunity to give him glory in our marriage. You know, the, the, the rebellion and fall of Adam and Eve has far-reaching consequences that are felt today, that are felt in this room here this morning. And we feel that weight in ourselves. We feel it. We can see it in humanity. 
And, and so many of us see the needs in our own life, in our church family, in your own family, in the world, and we think, who can take care of this? Where is hope? You feel the weight of sin and shame in your life for things that you know you shouldn't have done and you chose to do, and you feel naked and vulnerable, and you want to be covered. The only way to be covered, friends, is to rely on God and His covering. God says all throughout the Bible, I am the God who covers your sins. You remember ever reading through the book of Hosea where Hosea finds his wife who's been sold into slavery and she's on the slave block and she's naked and he buys her back at great cost in spite of what she's done and continued to do to him and he covers her. He covers her and he gives her dignity back. And the Lord says, this is how I will treat you. In Isaiah 61, where the prophet says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. See, God is the one who does that it's all throughout the Bible. God says, I am the one who covers you. And then in our passage, look at verse 20, just for one paused moment here. The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of the living. You know why he called her Eve? Because he believes the promise that God has given, that an offspring will come. She is mother of the living because the seed will come. And then look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve, for Adam and his wife, garments of skins and clothed them. See, this is significant right here. They're naked and they're ashamed of themselves and at this point they have sewn fig leaves to cover themselves, right? And what does God do here? He clothes them. And what does he clothe them with? Skin. That means an animal would have to die. Something would have to be killed to provide a covering for Adam and Eve. This is the first time we see atonement in the Bible. Something dies to cover the sins of others. This is the first death in God's creation. Something dies to cover the sin of Adam and Eve. But it won't be the last death. And we won't have full understanding of the covering that we will need until Jesus Christ comes. Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. If you think it's not fair that sin has spread to all men because one sinned, um, I'm sorry, we, we pay for the sins of others. Do you understand that? Just think of TSA, Right? I hope none of you need to be looked at, but there's a reason why there's TSA. We pay for the sins of others. Understand that? Great. Verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. 
For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus came to die and to cover our sins. He is that seed that we've been longing for. He is the one that we look towards and we sing of in Christmas. And this morning, we have the opportunity as a church to remember tangibly of why Jesus came to the earth. That is what communion is about. He came to die as a sacrifice to cover our sins. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need to understand you stand naked and exposed before God, but God sent his son to cover you, to die for your sins, and is a free gift of salvation. And Jesus' blood covers you completely, and you stand in Jesus fully clothed without any shame because of what he's done for us. So I plead with you to turn from your sins of trusting yourself and trusting Christ alone for salvation. Church family, we have the opportunity to see the word as we partake of the Lord's Supper. This is one of the ordinances of the church. This is the duty of of Christians who are, are seeking to follow Jesus Christ and all of his commandments those that are seeking to be a part of a church and to live together with other Christians. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I would warn you to not take part of this communion meal, to observe, to watch us as we partake together, and then to find myself or another pastor this morning. We'd love to talk to you about your relationship with God. And Christian, I remind you that you partake of this meal not as someone who has lived perfectly this week. We've all sinned this week, either in deed or word or in mind. And so I want to encourage you to spend some time as as the elements are passed to consider for a moment your sin and confess that to God. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so I want to ask those that are serving to come forward here as we partake of the Lord's Supper, come on forward, and I'm going to pray and they will partake together. Father, we thank you for sending your son to come and die on the cross for our sins. His body and blood shed for us on the cross redeems us and covers us and places us in the family of God. And so we remember this morning as we partake of this meal of the bread and the juice. We remember what Christ has done for us. And we give you glory, God, for your goodness to us, for Christ securing our salvation. For we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.